for the reading of the gospel of the lesson. The gospel of our Lord according to St. John. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he watched Jesus walk by and exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. So he brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. As a young child, I was, before the age of eight, I was a, I was a preacher's kid. Among the more conservative cousins of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Morning. It was uh, among the independent Christian churches. And my dad had gone through seminary and was a full-time pastor at a small congregation in Chillicothe, Illinois. As I've mentioned before, the church itself was located in the basement of the parsonage. So we literally lived on top of the church. Now, so much of my early childhood was formed by the rhythms of congregational life, Christmas and Easter, obviously, but I mean, also the more mundane parts of church life, potlucks and 
congregational camping trips in the spring, vacation Bible school in the summer. And one of the significant events every year in our small congregation was the big revival, complete with a canvas tent, thick, scratchy jute rope and wooden stakes that looked like they came off the set of Dracula. Now somebody, I don't remember who, would, would come in and, and, and put up this colossal circus tent out in the field on the other side of the gravel parking lot, which was bounded by treated railroad ties and lay right below my bedroom window. Now this week-long revival, which I always found really exciting, I mean, there's lots of people and, and activity, and, 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 and I was, of course, the scion of the local preacher. I mean, heck, I was the only kid in my grade school who hosted their very own Jesus Carnival every year. Now, one of the parts that I liked best was that we'd have company. Now, the visiting preacher would come and stay with us. Usually, these were friends of my father who'd gone to seminary with him, and and they all seemed so interesting and, and, and fun. And I remember my dad laughing a lot, which was noticeable since my dad didn't laugh very much around us. Not, I think, because he was necessarily unhappy with his family, but because I suppose he just didn't find us that funny. But when those guys showed up, because, I mean, it was always guys, right? Well, then my dad just became a regular dude in his late 20s, you know, all the reminiscing and jokes. And, and, and I love that time as much because of the life that it brought to my dad's eyes as for the novelty that it brought to my rather predictable small town life, which is why I was confused when these same otherwise fun-loving young fellas who at supper had just told goofy jokes and laughed and carried on would then go outside to the Revival, stand up under the strands of hanging light bulbs strung between the tent poles and start howling about how we were all going to hell if we didn't hurry up and get baptized. I mean, the whole thing was so strange to my young mind. I mean, the, the, these guys whose company I thoroughly enjoyed the rest of the time suddenly sounded like raging lunatics to me who'd recently been bitten by a rabid bat. I mean, I didn't get it. The rest of the year, I, I heard about God's love for all of us, the, the, the matchless grace that seeks us out and refuses to let us go, no matter who we were or what we'd done. But then once a year, I was introduced to a different God, who, one who sounded like, to me, would take a great deal of pleasure in watching me suffer and fail. Why? Because then this spiteful God would get to punish me for all eternity. Now, I was a kid whose parents didn't scream. I mean, once in a while, we'd, we'd do some stupid kid thing and get in trouble, but, but I mean, even then, when they were angry, it always seemed like my parents were in control of themselves. And that's how my dad preached. I don't remember him ever raising his voice, pounding the pulpit. Instead, his preaching tended to be much calmer, more persuasive. My dad liked to teach, 
and his sermons were the vehicle for his most extended lessons. And it wasn't that my dad didn't believe in hell or God's judgment necessarily. On the contrary, I think he didn't trust the emotional frenzy whipped up by the revival preachers. He was a rational thinker, a good old-fashioned, logic-chopping Campbellite through and through. So I asked my dad about it one time after a particularly rousing revivalist homily about our inevitable one-way ticket to perdition, and I said, God, why are they so angry? And my dad said, well, but they're concerned. They want everybody to find God's love. And I said, well, they sure don't sound like they care about love at all. And he cocked his head and raised his eyebrows as if to concede the point. And I said, but you, and you don't preach like that. How come? And he said something that stuck with me. He said, you, you can't force people to love God. Nobody ever fell in love because they got their arm twisted. If you manipulate people into following Jesus, then it's not really Jesus they're following because Jesus cares about healing people, not torturing them. All right, I said, but if that's true, then why do you have these preachers at our church? <laughs> In retrospect, I, I, I realized that that was a kind of a sharp question that would have been difficult to explain to a six-year-old. He stumbled through some answer, which apparently didn't satisfy my curiosity. So he said, well, <clears throat> some people think something's wrong with their faith, that, that, that God doesn't love them if they don't walk around feeling guilty all the time. These preachers just want to make sure uh, that as many people as possible love God. And I said, well, they sure have a funny way of showing it. And he nodded his head and said, indeed. Now, we never had another revival after that. It, let, let me be honest. I mean, it would, it would be claiming too much to say that it was my question that were, that were the reason for that. But the, the reality is that my dad left the ministry shortly after that to go into publishing, which which had more to do with his being a world-class introvert than anything I might say about the emotional blackmail of tent revivals. But I will note that after my dad left the ministry when I was seven years old, we never went to another revival. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, if God is so great, why do we have to manipulate people into following Jesus? I had a professor, interestingly enough, one of my dad's roommates, when my dad traveled by train to seminary for classes during the week, who later, when I was in college, agreed with my dad on this whole revivalist turn or burn thing. He used to tell us, he would say, you need to be careful what you preach because what you win them with is what you win them to. If, you, if people come to Jesus because they've had the hell scared out of them, then they'll likely believe that God is manipulative and violent. But God is neither. Now, I'm not a psychotherapist. 
I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express. But I guess some people need to feel like God only makes sense if God's a strong parent who's not only willing to punish the kids, but enthusiastic about it. Because those people believe that such violently manipulative language is how parents show love. Now, early on, I, uh, I ministered in a couple of congregations where people felt just like that. They felt like that hard, like really hard. They'd meet me in the greeting line after church, and they would say, Preacher, that was a good sermon, but I need a little more heat. They would say, it doesn't feel like I've been to church if the preacher doesn't step on my toes. Now, I was shocked by that. I mean, I hate feeling guilty. Like, like, like I'm constantly struggling with someone whose apparent mission in life is to find newer and ever more creative ways to be disappointed in me. I mean, who needs that? As I say, I, I, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze anybody, but I mean, come on. Why would anyone want to follow a God who has more in common with an over-eager hall monitor slash disapproving librarian than the God who created us in God's own image and refuses to rest until we're able to enjoy a world filled with equity, justice, and the abundance that God desired for us all along. See, the scriptures present any number of images of God. God, the Lion of Judah, the, the, the watchful shepherd, the heartbroken lover, the vigilant protector, the loving parent who expects more from us uh, often than we're even willing to give, the, the vulnerable shepherd who, who places God's life in our hands. So, so, so why focus all your energy on a God who seems perpetually aggrieved? Who, who prefers manipulation to attraction, whose greatest desire seems to be to set down impossible expectations in the hope that nobody will meet them so that God can finally do what God wanted to do all along, which is lower the boom and send us all to hell. Now, if that's the God you serve, isn't that the example that you imitate? I mean, if you believe that a bitter, resentful, and suspicious God is the image in which you were created, is it any wonder when you turn out to be bitter, resentful, and suspicious of everybody else who doesn't meet your standards? Aha. In a world like that, our most important job is to make sure that everybody else knows how, God, uh, how annoyed God is with them so that by some chance, they'll shape up and avoid condemnation. Have you ever felt like that? That, that, that? that faith like medicine has to taste awful to be effective? Yeah? Every time, of, uh, every time this brand of faith dominates, however, people wind up dead and persecuted in the name of love. I mean, that's how we got the Inquisition and witch burnings and the moral majority. From a causal reading of history, it soon becomes clear that there are always a sufficient number of people who claim to love Jesus and the God he embodies, 
and who are so afraid of that God that even coercion and manipulation are acceptable if it saves some sinner from the hands of an angry God. All of which is why I find this passage in our gospel this morning so comforting, so, so counterintuitive. See, John the Baptist has obviously heard about this Jesus guy. He says that he saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus at his baptism, looking like a what? An avenging angel bent on showing everybody just how displeased God is? No, John says he saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus like a dove. This Jesus, he tells everyone, is the Son of God. In other words, I feel pretty sure this is the guy that we've been waiting for. Now, the next day, John's standing around with two of his disciples, whom we learn are Andrew, who is the brother of the rowdy Simon Peter, and Andrew and the other disciple. They're they're, they're apparently just hanging about, talking about what? The vagaries of the fishing industry, how inflation has made every trip to Kroger feel like an economic adventure, or how the world is going to end in a fiery apocalypse. I mean, who knows? But in the middle of it all, Jesus happens by, and John the Baptist says to his followers, hey, that guy, that's the guy. And they raise their eyebrows, and they say, the guy? And John shows, in a show of exasperation, I, you know, the guy I've been talking about, you know, the Lamb of God, is that, I mean, is that ringing any bells for you all? And just as soon as he says this, according to the text, John's two devoted followers peel away and they start following Jesus. Now, as soon as it becomes obvious that they're curious about this guy that their boss has been talking up, and so Andrew and the other disciple hang around the edges trying to figure out if what John has said about this guy is true. I mean, is Jesus really the Lamb of God, the one who's come to set things right for God's people? And Jesus sort of notices them on the fringes, and he says, what are you looking for? But you see, this is not just the simple question, the same, what are you looking for, as the lady at the Rainbow Blossom asked when you come in on a mission to find soy-based flank steaks. The word that Jesus uses in our text has to do more with quests for the meaning of life. What is, what is it you're looking for? What is the ultimate value in this life that you're searching for? And so they say, interestingly enough, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which seems like a, a weird response. Now again, this question on the lips of the disciples is not the one that your friends ask you at the bar after the main program at the convention. This is a question that can't be answered by offering the name of the chain that holds your loyalty reward points. This is another question with cosmic implications. Where are you staying means like Something like, where do you abide? Where are you located in this world in relationship to the ultimate quest to find God? 
Now, here's where a more insecure preacher would have said, what, are you going to question me? I'm the Lamb of God for crying out loud. I do the questioning around here. And the reality of this situation, of your situation, is this. Either jump on the Jesus Express or find yourself riding the red line train to eternal punishment. On or off, your choice. I know, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Does he try to scare them into joining up? Does he threaten or manipulate? I mean, do you get the feeling that when they show up, these two disciples, Jesus sees them as potential projects who, who, who need to be tricked into giving up their fun-filled lives as fishermen in favor of a future filled with suffering and sacrifice? Whose, whose biggest need is staying one step ahead of old scratch? No, all he says is, come and see. I'm not going to try to sell you anything. I'm not here to fill my quota of converts. I'm here to announce the coming of a new realm in which everyone has enough. And justice walks the land arm in arm with peace. That's it. No, no, no specially constructed campaign to turn people into sales figures. No bumper sticker theology. No hurry, supplies are limited. No turn or burn, no get right or get left. No, you better get fire insurance. No, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? All Jesus says is just come and see. I feel confident enough about the life that I'm offering that I don't need to figure out how to sell people on it. I don't need to have to figure out how to scare them into buying it. The life I represent so obviously exceeds the impoverished life on offer from this present realm that all I really care about is giving people a chance to catch a glimpse of it. And how do these two followers of John respond? How do they, what do they say? Well, the text says that they said uh, that they came and saw where Jesus was staying, where he was abiding, and they abided with him that day. Which is a, a rather oblique way of saying they figured they'd follow and find out. And we, we who've been given the job of modeling this new life that Jesus announces, of offering a new vision of reality, the one that Jesus opens up, of, of spreading the good news of the world that God is busy creating, we demonstrate the confidence we have in this new life so much so that our responsibility becomes not tricking people or browbeating them into submission, but merely whispering, if you want to know, if you want to know, Come and see. Come and see. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.